Psalm 66, how awesome are your deeds. To the choir master, a song, a psalm. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and they sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name, Selah. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules his might forever, whose eyes kept watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. For you have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. You have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Selah. Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Lord, it's great this morning for us to sing to you and praise you, but God, also to sing back to our own hearts, to remind ourselves that it's you that we live to bless, that it's you that we live to worship, that it's you that we live to to praise. And Lord, just as that song said, as we think and we remember all that you've done in our lives, we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of reasons that we can call the mind to worship you, to want to praise you, to want to thank you for all the many different ways that you've helped us, that you've loved us, and that you saved us. So God, this morning we ask that you would meet us here in this place as we open your word. God, we trust that this is your living and active word. And so we ask you to work in our hearts, perform your work in us this morning through the power of your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord, and we're excited to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. Have a seat. If you have been around uh, the church or any uh, churches for any amount of time, there's a good chance that you have lived through firsthand what has now uh, come to be known as the worship wars. Uh, You've experienced the tension that sometimes happens in churches where there's disagreement and frustration over what kind of music and the volume of the music and what decade the music was first written in. Should we sing hymns or choruses? Should we play guitars or organs? Should we have choirs or bands? Uh, These are the questions that drive the worship wars. 
But worship wars aren't just something that people in the church uh, have thought about. Um, as a pastor, I end up talking to a lot of people, uh, and when I, a lot of times when I meet somebody new for the first time, one of the first questions they ask me is, what do you do? And then the conversation awkwardly turns. Uh, some people are uh, happy to just get quiet and change the subject, but not a few people are, are very quickly happy to tell me their opinion of church, and they want to know what kind of church uh, that I serve in. And I think that over the years, after having some of these, these uh, conversations, what I've learned is that what people want to know is, do I serve in a suit and tie church or a blue jeans church? Uh, is our church casual or is our church uptight? Is our church religious or is our church freeform? Now, if we're honest, uh, what's really down underneath these conversations about the worship wars or the interest in what kind of church uh, we, we are in, uh, it has very little to do with who God is, and it has a lot more to do with who we are. Uh, we rarely stop to think about how God deserves to be worshipped. We come to church with ourselves in mind. Uh, the real problem with the worship wars is that it is basically man-centered. The conversation always centers around what kind of worship we want, what kind of songs we want to sing, what kind of liturgy we most connect with. But we must stop to consider that maybe God is the one who gets to decide how he is worshipped. And maybe when he reveals to us how he wants to be worshipped, he is on a totally different page altogether. Uh, last week in Psalm 65, we looked at how God is the only one who is worthy of worship. And in, and in some ways, we're going to be just continuing that conversation as we hop into Psalm 66. But we're going to be coming at it from a slightly different angle. If in Psalm 65, we learned about this big, great, good, and gracious God, then in Psalm 66, we're going to be asking the question, how does a God like that deserve to be worshipped? What kind of worship is this God worthy of? And so let's just make it personal right here from the beginning this morning. I want to ask you a few questions. Do you believe that you can worship God in the way that you think is best? Or do you think that, that you have to worship God in the way that he thinks is best? Uh, do you approach worship like it's something that, that you have possession of? Or do you approach worship as, as if it's something that God has possession of? And I think here's, here's the real question. If God were to ask you this morning to change the way you worship him, would you be willing to adjust? Would you be willing to make the change? As we work through Psalm 66 today, uh, I think that God is going to ask all of us to adjust the way we worship. And my prayer is that our hearts would be soft enough to say yes, Lord, to whatever he has to say to us this morning. So first, in Psalm 66, uh, we're going to be looking at how God is blessed when we praise him gloriously. God is blessed when we praise him gloriously. Now, you've already heard Psalm 66 read this morning, but we're going to jump into these first four verses again. 
As the psalm opens up, we get a sense that this is a call to worship. That's one of the reasons why we wanted to read it at the very beginning of the service this morning. Uh, He says, shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. We are being told what to do and we are being told what to say. So I wonder when the last time was that you physically, audibly shouted to God for joy. Certainly this psalm is trying to stretch us, it's trying to get us a little bit out of our comfort zones, but I think on a more basic level, this psalm is trying to get us to act towards God like we act in so many other areas of our lives. So if your response to a raise at work or your kid's straight-A report card or a last-second victory of your favorite team would be a yippee, then maybe every once in a while in your worship, there ought to be some yippeeing going on. And if you're the kind of person who says, let's go, baby, that's what I'm talking about, then maybe sometimes in your worship, you should be saying, let's go, baby, God is awesome. You know, this, this psalm is not trying to get us to act out of control. This psalm is trying to help us channel the same excitement and uh, ex- expressions that we put in other areas of life towards this great and awesome and worthy God. But uh, this psalm isn't just interested in our expressiveness. Uh, that's only one slice of this pie. We're also told what the content of our songs are supposed to be. Uh, When we gather together like this as a church and we sing, it is the glory of God's name that should fill our songs. And verses 3 and 4 pick up on this and take it a little bit further. Along with declaring the glory of God's name, we are to brag on what God has done. God is the focus. It's his name. It's his works. And it's his power that we ought to be singing. And I think this makes sense because Christianity isn't so much about who we are and what we do for God. Christianity is about who God is and about what he has done for us. Now, when I look at these first four four verses that we just read, uh, the the part that sticks out the most to me is this little phrase in verse 2, where the psalmist calls us to give to him glorious praise. To give to him glorious praise. In other words, this is how I might paraphrase this. Praise God in such a way that your praise is praiseworthy. Praise God in such a way that your praise is praiseworthy. Uh, A few years ago, uh, Kyle Stewart, uh, who is our ministry director here, uh, he and I were uh, at a Buffalo Wild Wings watching the USA women's soccer team compete for a world championship. And um, they won, by the way, by a blowout victory. But it was this extremely unique experience for me, something I had never experienced in my whole life. Every single person, and the place was packed, every single person in the restaurant was pulling for the same team. I've never experienced that in my whole life. And so when when USA scored the first goal of the game, it was like the entire restaurant erupted and everyone started banging on the table saying, USA, USA, USA. And it was like something I had never been a part of where, where everyone there. And listen, this is the thing. I don't remember who scored that goal. I don't even remember who we were playing. 
I don't remember any of the names of any of the people. I don't remember what I ate that night. But I remember that praise. I remember the way that in unison, that whole place came together and started chanting and screaming. That, to me, is an illustration of what glorious praise is like. It's, what, it's like when your praise is so amazing that that's what you leave talking about. Glorious praise is exciting, it is engaging, it is focused, and it's like nothing else we experience anywhere else in life. Now, uh, in one sense, as we work through the rest of Psalm 66, it's just going to be unpacking for us uh, kind of exactly what this glorious praise is all about. But I think that right here at the beginning, um, even, even here just in this first point, let's just ask a question of ourselves. Would you describe your praise as glorious? What, what grade would you give your praise? Below average, average, above average, glorious? It's a tough question. Now, I think at this point we could live in the practicals, right? We could talk about comfort zones. We could talk about personalities. We could talk about trying new things. Uh, but this psalm actually doesn't do that. Um, and this is what I love about this psalm. It starts by commanding us how to worship God. And it, and it sets, you've seen it, it sets the bar really, really high on what our praise for God ought to be like. Uh, and I think in our, our worldliness, we might think, okay, all right, uh, I, I got to start singing louder. Maybe I need to start raising my hands. Uh, maybe we need to get some lights and laser shows going on in here, or we need to invest in some better technology and so forth. But instead, uh, this psalm is going to take us on a, a different journey altogether. Um, I think that God knows that if those kinds of joyous, exciting expressions are actually going to come out of our mouths and out of our lives, then something's going to have to change in our hearts. And so that's where the rest of this psalm goes. Um, so second, God is blessed when we gaze at him joyfully. God is blessed when we gaze at him joyfully. Uh, for those of us, and I would assume that's all, if not most of us, who know that our praise falls short of glorious, uh, we are here in verse 5, handed an invitation. The psalmist reaches out his hand like a trusted tour guide and says in verse 5, Come and see what God has done. If we're going to praise God in a glorious way, then we need to see what God has done. The psalmist continues in verse 5. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. The psalmist wants us to come and see what God has done in the past when he brought his people out of slavery from Egypt and he did it in a miraculous way. They were slaves. They were weary. They were a crushed and afflicted people. And as they got up and left Egypt, they were trapped between this oncoming angry army and a roaring sea in front of them. And uh, I would imagine that for you sometimes uh, in your life, this is exactly the position that you find yourselves in. Uh, you feel stuck between a rock and a hard place. You, you feel like you are in a lose-lose situation. Uh, you feel like there's nowhere to go. Uh, you are trapped and left for dead. But God. God in uh, Exodus parted the sea and his people walked across on dry land. Uh, this is the event that we now know as the Exodus. Uh, in coming and seeing what God had done for Israel in the past, there's two things that we learned for our lives. Uh, first, we are reminded 
that the same God who parted the seas and allowed his people to walk across on dry land is the same God that you and I pray to and worship today. He's the same God who can reach down into your life today and do a miracle, and that's amazing. Uh, But the second thing is that we're reminded that the Exodus event, that miraculous saving of his people, bringing them out of slavery to Egypt and parting the, the sea so that they could walk across on dry land, was a foreshadowing of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. We are slaves to sin and under the bondage of Satan. We are as good as dead and lost in the land of idolatry, but God. God rescues us. He redeemed us. He set us free. He led us out of the bondage of sin and death. So if you are here today and you are a Christian, you are a walking miracle. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then the invitation is for you as well to come and see what God has done, that he sent his only son for you uh, so that you could be brought out of bondage to sin and death and find life in him. If you will put your faith in Jesus, then God will do a miracle in your life as well. You today can be a walking miracle. Now, how do you think those Israelites responded when they watched the waters collapse behind them and Pharaoh's army drowned in the sea that they had just walked through uh, on dry land. Um, What kind of praise do you think poured out of their hearts as they experienced this salvation? The psalmist tells us in verse 7, There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Of course they rejoiced because they had just seen an amazing sight. And listen, I can't help, but after in the beginning of verse 5, being invited to come and see what God has done, take note of the fact that at the end of this section in verse 7, the psalmist tells us where God's eyes are. We are called to look at God to come and see what he has done because it is God who keeps watch over the nations. Uh, You may not realize it, but one of the most important aspects uh, in how you worship is what you are looking at. Uh, We worship with our eyes, and God is blessed when he has the attention of our gaze. All day long, there are people and things and ads all around you saying, come and see, come and see, come and see, come and see our product, come and see our controversy, come and see our candidate, come and see, come and look, come and set your gaze on this, and it robs God of our worship. Um, I'm fairly new to home ownership, uh, but I am now responsible for a few small trees, And I have learned uh, about these little things called suckers. Uh, There are these little stems that start to grow up from the bottom of a tree, and they suck away the water and the nutrients that that tree needs to thrive. And so you have to get out there, and you have to rip these suckers out from the bottom of that tree so that the tree can get the nutrients that it's supposed to have. Uh, Well, I see uh, that there are three uh, what I would call visual suckers that suck the life away from glorious worship. That when we put our eyes on these things instead of on God, it robs him of glorious praise. 
And the first is this, when we have our eyes on ourselves, uh, we exalt ourselves like you see at the bottom of verse 7 there. We are constantly looking in the mirror. We are admiring ourselves. We are obsessed with how we look and what we have. And it robs God of glorious praise. But the second is when we set our eyes on other people. Uh, Instead of finding our joy in God, we find our joy in someone else. We live our lives with a constant eye to what they think about us and their approval of our lives and what they are telling us to do. And it robs God of glorious praise. And then I think the final sucker, and I think, that, I think that the psalmist is trying to draw us attention to this one by telling us that it is God's eyes who are on the nations. But it's when we have our sights set on the worries of the world all around us. We think that our highest priority is to keep watch over the nations. We think that our world will fall apart unless we focus on it. We assume that if we don't keep watch over these certain specific areas of our lives, then no one will. But do you see the lie there? The lie in thinking that we have to keep watch over every little thing in our lives says that we don't believe that God is keeping watch over those different areas of our lives. All along, God is saying to us, fix your eyes on me and I will be your joy. Fix your eyes on me and I will be your strength. Fix your eyes on me because it is I who keeps watch over the nations. Guys, you can't help but feel the weight of that right now, can you? You can't help but feel the weight of where we are in our world and in our life right now. This promise, this truth that it is God who keeps watch, that it is God whose eyes are on the nations. And where are our eyes supposed to be? On him. So glorious praise doesn't start with the question of guitars or organs or suits or blue jeans. It starts with what we look at. Come and see what God has done. But while true worship does start with what God has done, there is an appropriate response. There is an appropriate way that we respond to who God is uh, in our glorious worship of Him. So third, God is blessed when we worship Him sacrificially. God is blessed when we worship Him sacrificially. Verse 8 begins with another call to worship. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of His praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. So I want you to imagine that there's this uh, big balancing scale up here on the front of the stage uh, where you have you know, two things that, that balance each other out. What we're trying to find out is what kind of worship is worthy of God. So if we were to put God and, and all of His worthiness on one side of the scale, then what kind of worship would level with who He is? What kind of worship would be worthy, would be uh, equal to this greatness of, of who God is? And so the first thing we need to do is start by filling up this scale with who he is, with with all these wonderful things that he's done. And so the psalmist is continuing to recount for us all of these gracious and wonderful things that God has done. And the first thing he says here is that he has kept our soul alive and not let our feet slip. So just for a second, think about your own life. Think about how many times uh, you were this close to slipping and sliding and just falling completely out of control but God stepped in and he helped you. Think about if just one little decision this way or that way, or one bad thing this way or that way, and your life, you know your life would be totally worse than it is right now. 
The psalmist is trying to call forth glorious praise from us by weighing down that side of the scale, but by, by reminding us of, of how good God has been to us throughout our lives. But then, it, to me, it seems like this psalm is about to take, take a turn. In verses 10 through 12, it's, it, to me, reads, at first, uh, really odd. 10, th- 10 through 12 say this, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet, you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Do you feel what is jarring about this? The psalmist is making an argument for why we should praise God. Uh, He's trying to get us to shout for joy. But as he begins to stack up the evidence on that side of the scale, we realize that he's calling us to praise God for all of the hard and unwelcome things that have happened in our lives. Make Make no mistake. God is seen here in these verses as the sovereign actor. Over and over and over, the psalmist says, you, 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 you did this to us. See, I think that most of the time, uh, you and I live in this fantasy world. Uh, We have ideas of what we think is important in life. We have an idea of what we think the blessed path of life is like. But God sees life the way it really is. And he knows that if you and I are actually really to enjoy life and enjoy life with him, that we need radical heart surgery. Uh, We would naturally, you and I would naturally choose the path of least resistance. Uh, We would naturally choose to just move along with the current of this world. But God is so gracious to us, and he sees life so much the way it's really supposed to be that he knows that if we take the path of least resistance, it will lead to death. That if we just float along with the current of this world, that the world will just float us on right on into hell. And so in God's grace, he crushes us. And I think we need to see that it is both God who places the heavy burden on our back and God who has not let our feet slip. It is God who let men ride over our heads, and God who has kept our soul among the living. It is God who brought us into the net, and God who has brought us out into this place of abundance. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, Peter says it this way. He says, In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see how Peter connects sovereign suffering 
to praise. The tested genuineness of your faith results in praise. So here's the principle. We're talking about glorious praise this morning. We're talking about not average, not great, but glorious praise. Glorious praise is forged through the fire. Glorious praise is forged through the fire. When true, beautiful, God-honoring, amazing praise flows out of our life, it comes because we have experienced the crushing grace of God. And now we know, now we finally know that everything we have is His. Everything good in our life is His. That He's the only one who loves us enough not to just do what we think is best. And I think that's the only thing that makes sense of the response in verse 13 through 15. The psalmist breaks out and says, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. He says, now, Lord, in view of the fact that you broke me to heal me, that you burned me to refine me, I am going to offer up a sacrifice of praise to you. Now, again, I want you to have that image in your mind of the the balancing scales. When you think about what kind of worship is God worthy of, the psalmist is teaching us that the only answer, the only answer for what kind of worship honestly balances the scales with this awesome and mighty God is sacrificial worship worship is the kind of worship that puts some things to death in order to honor and praise and worship God. So here's how I see this working out both in the text and in in our lives. I'm going to give you four A's, uh, four A's to help us think through sacrificial worship. Uh, First, we worship God through sacrificial activities. We worship God through sacrificial activities. Uh, Notice how the psalmist isn't pawning off these sacrifices to someone else. Uh, He himself is doing the sacrificing. He says, I will come, I will perform, I will offer, I will make. If you choose to serve God, serving God will put other things in your life to death. Uh, Serving God is a sacrifice, and only you can perform your service to God. Uh, We also worship, secondly, through sacrificing accomplishments, through sacrificing accomplishments. In other words, we give up the pursuit of worldly achievements. Uh, The psalmist says, I will perform my vows to you. Faithfulness to God now has the rule over his life. If you follow Jesus, there will be a moment in your life when you will have to choose between faithfulness to Jesus and worldly accomplishments. And when you choose faithfulness to Jesus, you will be putting to death some accomplishments, some success, and some achievements that you could have had if you had broken your vow to Jesus. A third A, we worship God by sacrificing assets. Notice how this psalmist is about to offer up rams, bulls, and goats to God, and not just one of each, but it's plural. This was going to be an expensive worship service. All of us, no matter what life stage we are in or what tax bracket we belong to, have the opportunity to worship God 
with our assets. We will miss out on other things that we could have had. And we will do it not because we feel like we need to make up for the sins in our lives. But we will do it because God is worthy of it. And then I think a a fourth thing that would be really, really easy to miss, but I, I think it's important for us to hear. A fourth A is that we worship God through sacrificing our attitudes. We worship God through sacrificing our attitudes. The whole picture from verses 8 through 15 is clearly one of gratitude. It starts out in verse 8, bless our God, and it ends with, I will make an offering. Uh, There would have been many reasons, there would be many reasons, if verses 10 to 12 were our lives, and for some of us it, it does feel that way, that we would have to mope and complain and groan. But it is a sweet smelling sacrifice to God when we put to death our pity parties and we put to death our woe is me attitudes and we actually offer up the gratitude and the thanksgiving to God that he always deserves. The worship that is worthy of God that balances the scales with who he is is sacrificial worship. If our worship to God costs us nothing, then it's not true worship. And this is why. Because we always, we always make sacrifices for the things that we love. If our worship for God costs us nothing, then it's not true worship. As we move to our last section of the psalm, uh, there's one more thing that I think we need to, to think carefully about. Because this is why. We can shout for joy. Uh, we can even look in the right directions. We can offer up the appropriate sac- sacrifices with our hands. And yet still, our praise can fall short of glorious in the eyes of God. Uh, for, for praise to be glorious, it must go all the way down deep into the heart. It can't just be a matter of the mouth. It can't just be a matter of the eyes. It can't just be a matter of the hands. It has to go all the way down to the heart. And so forth and finally, God is blessed when we fear him reverently. God is blessed when we fear him reverently. One more invitation, one more opportunity the psalmist gives us in verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. You know, I I was thinking about it this week, and and it's just so funny that that he says it this way. It's so funny that he ends the psalm this way. Uh, He could have easily just said, I prayed to God, and God heard me. But instead, he takes, a, he takes a moment to teach us something about our prayer, to teach us something about our worship. See, God is very gracious, and he pours out his love into our hearts again and again and again. But God won't tolerate being treated like a fool. I'm sure that some of you here have taken the love language test. Uh, You take the test, and it tells you how you best receive love, but it also tells you how your spouse best receives love. And uh, Allie, as most of you know, is my wife. Um, I can say really nice things to her. I can give her all the verbal praise in the world, and uh, it's like kind of like just okay for her. 
Uh, I mean, she's not like upset about it, but it just doesn't really do a whole lot for her. Uh, but if I clean the toilets, or if I hang something on the wall, you know, or if I bust out the vacuum, man, like, she feels loved. She feels cared for. Uh, yeah, it's a tough life. <laughs> God has a love language, if you will, uh, that he responds to. And his top love language in worship is an honest and humble heart. Uh, sometimes, you know, I don't want to wash uh, the toilets or hang stuff on the walls, and so I try to just, you know, give Allie compliments, but it doesn't work that way. And some of us, uh, we don't want to repent of our sin and truly turn to God in honesty, and so we think we can just keep offering up more and more sacrifices to Him, or we think we can just shout louder and louder as we sing our songs, but it doesn't work that way. God gets to decide how he is loved best. Now, because of the seriousness uh, of what this psalm says in verse 18, and, and guys, I mean, this is really, really serious stuff. Uh, I want to take it really slow and just work through the details. This is a really serious thing that it says, that if we cherish iniquity in our hearts, that the Lord won't listen to our prayers. This is a really, really serious thing. So first, let's look at what iniquity is. What is iniquity? Uh, iniquity is just one of the words that the Bible uses for sin. Uh, it's anything that does not line up with the truth. It's anything that God himself wouldn't think or say or do. Uh, it could be as overt as lying or cheating or stealing, but it could also be as subtle as coveting, bitterness, or selfishness. Uh, that's what iniquity is. Uh, it's in all of our lives. And when it's put up against the standard of God himself, it is nothing less than evil. Uh, second, what does it mean to cherish iniquity? What does it mean to cherish sin? Uh, we cherish sin when we enjoy it. We cherish sin when we linger with it. Uh, we cherish sin when we become so worldly that it starts to feel natural to us to do it. And I think that probably what this passage has in mind more than any of these things is that we cherish sin when we hide it. We cherish our iniquity when we cover it up. And the Bible calls this hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is extremely dangerous because with our mouths we sing the right things and with our eyes we look in the right directions and with our hands we offer up the right sacrifices. But in our hearts we hold back openness and honesty and a willingness to turn to the Lord in every area of our life. Hypocrisy is the number one killer of glorious praise. Because even if you and I hear people singing or we think that we've just experienced some awesome worship experience, we don't see one another's hearts. But God sees our hearts and He's the one who gets to decide whether praise is glorious or not. So listen, think about this. Think about the seriousness of this. The psalmist goes out of his way. He did not even have to bring this up. He could have just told us, I prayed, God answered. But he goes out of his way to teach us something. That when you and I cherish iniquity in our hearts, if we hold on to sin, if we hide sin, if we love sin, if we linger with sin, the Lord does not listen to our prayers. 
So if our Christianity is hypocritical Christianity, even though we might be saved and we might be going to heaven, God is not listening to our prayers. And a world where God is not listening to our prayers is a really scary place because that means that you and I are all on our own. We're totally by ourselves in this world with no help from God. But I want to leave you with good news. We learn in verses 19 through 20 that this story, this story of hypocrisy, this story of a rotten heart does not have to be our story. The psalmist tells us, but truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Glorious praise is a matter of the heart. The psalmist is not sinless but he is honest. And there's a big difference between being sinless and being honest. There's a big difference between being perfect and having integrity. So if we want to have a thriving walk with God, then regular admission and confession and repentance of sin should be uh, vital aspects of our prayer life and our worship life with God. And here's the good news. This morning, If you repent of your sin, you don't have to question what God's response will be. You approach a throne of grace. You approach nail-scarred hands. You approach the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is excited. He is welcoming you this morning to unburden yourself of the sin that you cherish and to walk in the openness of His grace for the rest of your life. What an exciting invitation. All right, all of us are tempted to approach the worship of God with ourselves in mind on our own terms instead of God. That's a temptation that we all face. All of us are tempted to ask the wrong questions, but here is the right question in the worship of God. What does God say? about how he wants to be worshipped. What we find, I hope what you've seen this morning, is that he just totally changes the subject altogether. Rather than style and form, what God cares about is heart and life. Our corporate worship matters, our singing to God, we love singing here, and it matters. But what fuels true, beautiful, glorious praise are hearts which fear God, eyes which are gazing joyfully upon God, hands which willingly offer up sacrifices to God, and mouths which are ready to praise and shout for joy to God. You know, true glorious worship happens when God's love has so filled our hearts that we join together and the only thing we really are thinking about is showing love back to Him, is singing His glory and praising Him for His glory as a response to everything he's done for us. At Palmetto Shores Church, uh, there is a worship war going on, but it's not about the style or form or genre of the music that we sing. The real worship war is what's going on inside of each of our hearts all the time. It's the question of will we honestly fight to worship God for everything that he's worthy of? So this is what we're about to do. Uh, This this morning we intentionally uh, left two songs for after the sermon. And so we're gonna get an opportunity this morning to respond 
directly to, what, to God's word in a way that we've just heard, to praise him with glorious praise. And I pray, I pray that you'll join me in adjusting, <laughs> in changing, in being willing to repent and to get aggressive about honestly worshiping God for everything that he deserves. So I'm gonna pray, our worship team's gonna come back up and then we're gonna just sing our heads off because God's worthy of it. Lord, uh, we just are so thankful. There's a lot here, God, uh, but there's a lot to you and you've done so much for us. Um, I know, Lord, if we went around this room and we started telling the stories of our lives, each one of us would be able to point to how your grace came in and it crushed us and it was hard and it ripped everything out of our lives that we loved. But God, we wouldn't trade it for anything because now we have a more intimate fellowship with you. So we praise you for that. We praise you for the way that you love us, for the way that you care for us. God, for how you're so good to us in all things that you have not let our feet slip. And so we join our hearts and our voices together now to praise you and worship you, God, because you are worthy forever. It's in Christ's name that we worship and pray. Amen.